0: I'll say something provocative and we can start start arguing.
1: Alright, welcome to another episode of Increments. Uh, now that we both have real mic stands, do you think people will take us
0: more seriously? <sighs> Dude, they better, man. I've been buying everything <laughs> I can off Amazon just to be taken seriously. Did I tell you? I got a standing desk, and so right now I'm like standing and i have a like an elbow on the the table and i'm really intensely looking uh into the the camera so i, I think is that isn't going to make people take us seriously then i honestly, i don't know what
1: god I'm we better on. start releasing videos soon so yeah. people can actually see this stuff they better appreciate it right yeah.
0: so what are we talking about today man what are we talking about today so this is
1: a very overdue episode on Privacy or not an overdue episode, but one that I just have not had my shit together and have not released early enough. So we actually recorded this the same day that we recorded the episode with Stephen Keynes on facial recognition technology. And that was so much fun. We just had him back immediately. And we just yeah. we just uh, talked about privacy for like an hour and a half um, and got into some like fun little disagreements. And just we wanted to kind of know where his head was at. I mean, he's much more ensconced in that world than I think both of us are and could kind of give us the lawyer's take on yeah. privacy um in the in the twenty first century and how it's evolving. And so I don't know about you, I learned a lot, but uh for some reason we just haven't been able to get our shit together yeah. to release the episode, largely because of my ineptitude. But no, no. Uh, it, it was a fun episode.
0: Yeah, I, I remember <laughs> I, I learned a lot. I think I started this one by just like straw manning his view in the most blatant possible way. And so it's a, uh, it's a good uh, example of why it's so important to try to repeat back to your conversation partner, what you think they think, because when I did so, he's like, dude, that's not what I think at all. And it totally like derailed me for a little while. Um, but it's uh it's a good reminder that it's, it's so important to do that. So uh, I think at the very beginning, you'll hear me start by putting my foot in my mouth, but Steven gently uh, takes it out. So
1: So in case you're skimming these episodes for the most interesting one, I'll try and give you a preview of what we talk about uh, if memory serves uh, correctly. So some of the things we touch on is uh, just the general trade-off between privacy and security um, and how different... Uh, countries and how different organizations are, are managing that trade-off. Uh, we talk about who owns, uh, the data. So if the individual is producing the data, do they actually own it or is it the, the company that's providing the service, um, on which they're producing the data? Um, and so how, and then in general, how do legal experts think about privacy? Um, how has that definition changed over time? And then privacy, specifically in the COVID era, when sort of privacy, um, has taken on some new, new dimensions that, uh, were unfamiliar to us before um and specifically how, d- how different countries are are thinking about privacy and covid and how f- facial recognition technology plays in into that uh definition
0: yeah it was um it was a super enlightening conversation for for me because uh steven's just brilliant and he's uh trained in a very different field so he's he's uh in, in law school sorry um so he, he knows law, like, yeah, a lot quite intimately and i'd recommend um, people check out his website and, and we'll put a link to his uh His stuff in the show notes because he's someone you should know about. He's doing really important work. Yeah, seriously.
1: His website puts my website to shame. I feel bad every time I visit his. I'm like, oh my god, this man put in some effort. Mine's just a jumble of HTML and nonsense. Dude, it
0: it is sharp. Like I was very intimidated when I saw like just how professional his website looked. And (laughs) and then he and then he came on. He was just like chillest dude ever so uh, yeah Yeah. nicest guy so um so yeah so huge thanks to to steven for for coming on and hopefully we'll uh have him back and i can um just embarrass myself by mischaracterizing his views all over again so
1: why don't i ever get an apology (laughs) when you mischaracterize (laughs) my views
0: (laughs) god damn it it's
1: because i don't have a nice
0: website No, it's because I have to be polite to uh, to the guests, you know. uh,
1: Within the podcast (laughs) family, it's just all punches. (laughs) Exactly,
0: that's the only way I can win, dude, is by mischaracterizing (laughs) and (laughs) straumatic. Convince the audience I'm an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right, roll it. But yeah, so so last time was so much fun. We we just had to have uh, Stephen back again. Um, the plan for this second episode is to just talk about privacy. In general, uh, not focus on facial recognition technology too much, but uh, just to see where the subject goes. So so glad to have you back, man.
1: Baden is uh, an authoritarian at heart. <laughs> so he just wants to show his true colors in this episode. <laughs> exactly.
0: Starting <Yeah>. high. Starting <laughs> high.
2: Thank you so much for that introduction, Baden and Ben. Just uh, very excited to be here again. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be fun. So I wanted to pick up kind of where you left off, because I think we have some interesting disagreements, but it's a subject. So the subject is privacy, um, and it's something I've been really trying to work my way through, because I can't figure out how I feel about this. Um, I so I, I seem to hear you say that privacy is something we can never give up. Um, and I don't want to mischaracterize your view, but uh, that seems to me to be a position which is untenable because of the social contract. Just this idea that we we always give up certain. Um, uh, uh, of our liberties, in order to get other things which we value more. Um, and so, before I uh, opine too too much, I guess I'm curious if, if if that is your view or if I've mischaracterized it. But is it the case that you think privacy should never be given up? And if it's not the case, when should we give it up, and, and why?
2: So that is not my view. Okay. I didn't, <laughs> my I didn't my say. apologies.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. My apologies. That's why we needed to have you back so I wouldn't just talk smack <laughs> no, about you that's when you weren't right around. Right? That's what questions are <laughs> yeah, <I> for exactly. <laughs>
2: My viewpoint was that it's not that we should never give up privacy. Okay. It's that privacy is more valuable than we are currently assessing nice, as, nice as an individual and as a society. Nice. Okay. Um, I guess one interesting metaphor that I'll open with, and I'll, I'll just put this to you guys to see if you agree with this. Um, there is a, the director of privacy at Stanford. His name is Al Jadari, and he's uh, one of my friends. And he wrote some re- – before he came into privacy law, he actually did environmental law. And I was reading a blog post that he had posted years ago. And what I thought was fascinating was that he likened environmentalism to privacy, in that we have laws and regulations with the EPA, but those laws and regulations are not to 100% prevent ecological disasters. They're really just to mitigate them and ensure that the magnitude of them are not so great that, we're, that we can never return. And he said with privacy... When people talk about more privacy, they have this fantasy world where there's zero breaches and nobody knows anything about you, and there's no trail. That's completely logical. The reason why we have privacy law is not to prevent breaches, but it's to reduce the frequency and lower the magnitude. And I thought that that was a very <laughs> inviting way. So if I kind of if I misstated that as like all privacy all the time, I apologize. I mean, migrating to a system where privacy is a little bit more valued, and we all have a little bit. Greater literacy and active um, mm-hmm. participation, I guess, in the management of such data, instead of kind of possibly clicking always accept and not really yeah. delving a
0: little bit deeper. Excellent clarification. Um, I guess I left to that uh, 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 straw man of your view because most of what we had talked about is all is pushing in the direction of uh, more privacy. Um, and so, what are some? Cases where you think uh, giving up privacy is is okay, and what are and to actually put a, a stronger question to you, what are some cases where you think we should uh, uh, give up privacy, which we currently haven't, in order to get stuff that we perhaps could could get? Um, yeah, if, if, if that if that's a poorly phrased question, feel free to ask me to rephrase it. But
2: uh. Uh, no, I, I think that's uh, that's fair. Uh, one <laughs> thing I want to point out: so Ben and I are both Canadians. <laughs> I'm a dual citizen as well, Canada and oh, nice. the U.S. And so I keep an eye on a lot of what's happening at the border. And currently, uh, today is July 18th. And I believe in three days, they plan to reopen the US Canada border and they closed it because of how the US has been handling the that. virus. And like in different countries and even certain states now, if you arrive, they'll ask you, Hey, where are you going? Who are you staying with as a method of kind of uh, basic manual contact tracing to understand where you mm. are? And uh, that is an example where I don't find that objectionable because it's yes. key to know where you are if you're entering from a foreign country because you have the ability to kind of throw off the entire tilt, right? A- and I say that that's valuable because it involves the public health um, because it's a government and not some random dude with a clipboard, right? <laughs> At the border, just asking where where are you going? <laughs> so I think that in that situation, the prevailing interest is great enough to where it, it, um, it counterbalances the potential harm of someone abusing where you are, in fact, okay. staying for, like, let's say, the next week or two. Um, I think that so I'm I'm trying to think of the counter example or, or sorry of, of the flip side where you said a situation where it's unacceptable. Um, I think these apps that connect your search history, that um, track your search history, and also mm-hmm. your use of other apps, mm-hmm. I find that to be an overextension, um, simply because if I, let's say, I sign up for an app that like just tracks my runs, for instance, mm-hmm. and let's say just by default, in when I was accepting the terms it said it has access to my search history, I think that's an overreach, because <laughs> they don't necessarily need to see my search history. And they could argue it says innocuous, so, oh, you search for new running shoes, so here's Nike's that are exactly like that at a store where you can pick up today, right? Mm-hmm. And that would be good, but like, let's say they also find out that i have high blood pressure because i'm searching for medication Mm. and somehow that information goes gets back to my insurer when originally there was no record of it with my doctor Mm. that's an example of how my insurance premiums will probably rise if they know that or i could potentially even be denied certain health insurance and that information was not collected from my doctor it was not voluntarily revealed by myself it was more so collected latently in the background so those are two examples
0: excellent sorry uh i don't know what's your thoughts on privacy in general yeah yeah so i'd
1: like to maybe pose uh a question to you both, and just see how you react. So, Stephen, you bring up the the example of of Canada, sort of just tracking visitors into the country, at least for like fourteen days, while they figure out if they're sick or not. Um, and you cite that this is like a, a valid example of of sort of this tracking technology. So, there are states, cities, which have taken this one step farther. So, sort of like Hong Kong and Taiwan come to, come to my mind, right? So, here they're not only tracking visitors to the country; they're they're tracking their their citizens, right? And so they have. Um, I'm just picturing like a giant board where there's just red dots for everyone who has a COVID case, and they're watching where they go. And um, and then when, when there's a new case um, that they discover, they alert. They're like, look at where this person's gone. For example, a coffee shop. They've used their credit card or something. And then they alert everyone else who's been at this coffee shop by virtue of the of of tracking their credit cards, and, and they send them alerts. They say, you know, you were in the vicinity of someone. Who's now has COVID, um, and would you either, you know, please check yourself or, or undergo a mandatory quarantine or, or something, right? So they can take measures based on this information. And so this is, um, you know, in the language of the freedom-loving American, and like an infringement on rights, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but there's there's a reason why uh, some states have handled the pandemic much more effectively than the United States has, right? Because, like, a behavior like that on the part of the government would never pass, right? There would be riots in the streets if you tried to implement something like that in the U.S. And so there is this trade-off, right, in, in terms of how much leeway we're going to allow government to, like, track us and how effectively they can respond to crises like a pandemic. So you cite Canada as an appropriate example of, uh, you know, t- sort of technology, uh, and so I'm wondering what you think about like these, uh, yeah, so other countries in, in like uh, South Asia, for example, that are sort of using this and, and furthering the extent, um, but thereby are able to really reduce the, the, the impact of the coronavirus.
2: Definitely. So it's pretty serendipitous that you asked specifically about contact tracing. I know I mentioned it lightly earlier, so kind of like planted the seed, but I've been uh, looking into this a lot, and I think that the two distinguishing factors between many of these systems is, one, is it mandatory, right? So you look at countries like Singapore, for instance, where it is mandatory. Oh, no, sorry, sorry, I take that back. I don't think for Singapore, it's mandatory there's like a, a China, for instance, has a mandatory contact tracing system. Mm-hmm. And in the US, the systems are being developed by the states. And so you need so that it's voluntary. right? It's so the first thing, whether you're mm-hmm. compelled into downloading this or certain services mm-hmm. and goods are withheld from you until you mm-hmm. essentially get strong armed to doing this, I think is very vital. I think one way that we maintain that at least American ideal of it being a choice is it being voluntary, not mandatory. Secondly, I think the mechanism in which it works within these contact tracing, you can do it using Bluetooth or GPS GPS is much more accurate, but, uh, Bluetooth, um, you can use beacons to essentially make it anonymous. So you're not necessarily transmitting that, yes, I Steven hands with this specific cell phone number am the one who tested positive and then essentially sub- like, transfer it to you. It says that we were just in the same vicinity and they're mm-hmm. relatively anonymized, right? So I think that those are two ways of you can add privacy preserving features. And I've seen some projects where people are comparing these different systems from different states and different countries on those metrics, even things like retention, right? Like, you know, how long is the data kept? You know, who gets to see it? Also as a public, do we get to know how many people in our county how many notifications are sent out. So I think that there are a lot of considerations that on one hand, it could be very repressive and it's instantly installed on your phone and collecting all this data, including your contacts, right? And I think it can be designed in a way where it's voluntary and you still reap the benefits of being notified if you were exposed without having to sacrifice everything. So I think it lies on a spectrum. And then the other thing I'll note about contact tracing is that even though we're talking about it digitally manually it's been going on for hundreds of years and people have like used it successfully in previous pandemics with just manual people and there mm-hmm. are like states like new york who have people in clipboards bars like, walk around and actually just show up at your house the negative of that being though that now everybody on the block knows you most likely have covid and like there's a lot of uh, privacy that's inherently lost because of showing up to your house whereas an anonymous notification preserves that so it's almost like a trade-off even in the method of delivery that we're talking about too mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts, Faden? Oh,
0: uh, I, I uh, Ben said he was going to pose a question to both of us. And oh, so I, I wasn't sure if, uh, if uh, but
1: I, 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 yeah, I guess, sorry, it was, yeah, just, yeah, that was, it was just, yeah, like, how, how, do you, how do you feel about that? Do you think, like, obviously that's not going to pass in America, just given yeah, well, like, American psychology. Uh, uh, but like, do you think that's an appropriate use of this technology? Like, I have to say, there's so, there is something appealing about it, right? You're putting a lot of power in the hands of the states, but... You know, there's a reason why their COVID numbers are not in the millions <laughs> like they are in the Yeah, there's this the interesting,
0: US, right? um, so I really like, uh, Stephen, your distinction of, of it being mandatory versus uh, optional. Um, I would add the, this idea of opting in versus opting out, which is uh, interesting. So um, I, I think if, if everyone is forced to ha- be a little red dot on a map uh, and can't get out of it, um, that's, that's a little, little much because the data could obviously be used for quite sinister purposes. Um, but if we move to, uh, yeah. the use of say browser history in, uh, recommending, um, uh, particular commercial items on, on, um, online, or actually maybe a better example is I have an Alexa, um, and I love my little Alexa. I talk to it uh, every morning and every night and, uh, and everything that I say to it is, is, um, me giving it data, which is being stored on a database, uh, uh, data of my like my voice. Um, often I'll like even right now, it could be listening because I've said the wake word, Alexa. Um, but at, but at any point, um, I can go and I can. You don't even call it a she. Eh? You can just call it an it. Like, well, come on. <laughs> yeah. She's she's within earshot, so I need to be, be yeah. quiet. I, I don't want to insult her. Um, but but anyway, uh, I could go on to the app and delete all of my own data. So I have uh, so it's a it's essentially an opt-in policy where um, by virtue of me buying this thing, they're going to store the data. But I can go and delete anything that I don't like. Um, same with with uh, Google's um, uh, voice recognition. Then you can go onto your website. Sorry, your Account and delete any of the data that you don't have uh, that you don't want people to have access to, and so that seems to me to be an interesting middle ground between this um, problem of, of you needing everyone to be participating in this system um, for it to become effective, but you also want to give people the freedom to uh, be removed from the system at their own uh, choosing, and mm-hmm. and so I don't know. What are your thoughts on on this opt in opt out? distinction, which I'm sure uh, is comes up in, in the face recognition technology uh, discussion quite, quite often.
2: I mean, I'm definitely all for it. I think <laughs> that there's a lot of value into it. I just wonder if people opt in if it's an informed opt-in. That's really the key thing I'd like to circle. Yeah. Do they understand the full implications of what they're doing and subsequently what those effects might well, be? Well,
0: even, even oh, sorry, just to, to clarify uh, a little bit, it's um, I could imagine systems where by default you're in. Um, you aren't asked if you're in uh, such a, like the Alexa, it's keeping all your data and you're notified at the end of some, some terms of service agreement. But, but so by definition you're, you're opting in and then you have to consciously opt, opt out of it. Um, and so it's like this soft coercion. I don't know how we even would categorize this, but it's, it's it's, sorry to to cut you off, but I just want to clarify. No,
2: no, I know what you mean. I think what's funny is when I was first talking about this with a friend, we joked and said, it was like, remember the day that that E. 2 album just appeared on everybody's phone?
1: What happened there? <laughs> I got, yeah. I was offended.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I tried to delete it. I was like, why can't yeah. I delete the <laughs> yeah. like, phone? And so I, I think what's funny about that is, uh, I like that phrase that you use a soft coercion. That's funny. Um, I do think this that, is a,
1: no, sorry. sorry, I was just going to interject. This is very reminiscent of like libertarian paternalism. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, uh, which was, uh, yeah, I guess the the core uh, idea in the work like Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, where the government has to make some decisions, and they argue that therefore they should make the, the, the default um, should be the one that they think is in everyone's interest. Um, and so, like insurance plans, they think should be like opt out instead of opt in as the the default. Anyway, continue.
2: Yeah, definitely. Like, great book, by the way. But yeah, I definitely think that these should be opt-in systems instead of opt-out, just from like a software perspective. Um, I think that, uh, we have enough apps that are using our data, and like, there is a marketplace for that. I think that if the government were to just automatically install it, at least from an American traditional perspective of privacy, I think that that would essentially be like a, a violation, which is interesting. Um, I think too, within contact tracing, what's funny is, what about the people that don't have smartphones, right? So there's low-income people that don't have smartphones. Also children who can, you know, <laughs> clearly still get the coronavirus. It appears at a lower rate, but still significantly can experience adverse health effects. Like, what do you do? Some schools are actually giving them little dongles. And this isn't within the U.S. I forgot what country this is. But they're giving, like, little things that you can put on your keychain, essentially. And then that has a Bluetooth beacon within itself. So that way you get the benefit of the tracking without actually having to give the child a, a smartphone. Mm-hmm. So um, that's uh, those are two considerations. But I definitely think that any situation that's mandatory from at least a traditional American perspective of privacy is not one that I personally would like to see implemented. I think that the beauty of the system is that you have a choice. And once you remove that choice, I think that's the issue just to push back on one thing that Ben said, though, um, Mm. I would attribute other countries success to also other things like wearing masks. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they're Uh, solely beating us just because of that. I do agree. It's a contributory and like supplemental reason though.
1: Yeah. Point taken point. Definitely taken. Um, I, okay, I, yeah, that, that given, I want to push back a little bit on this concept of, like, opt-in, opt-out, because I think it only works in some domains. So, f- for example, when Vaden's talking about his Alexa, this is something that's only um, relevant to, like, your individual behavior, right? So, yeah, you can just go in, delete your data, and it's effective in as much as you allow it to remember things about you. But some, a, a broad system of, like, facial recognition technology that's is a network spanning a country um, is not something that is it pertains only to like a single individual, right? It's effective hmm. as a, as a technology that um, covers like every individual in a country. And like, same with contact tracing, right? If you have just a couple, if, if it's opt out and all of a sudden you can just say, no, I don't want you tracing me. Yeah, that's a good then point. the effectiveness of the government to, you know, enforce quarantine and actually damp down uh, problem areas um, or reduce the spread of the virus is significantly hampered it, by like, people uh, just saying, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to so, Okay, here. we have so to rob a bank, but everyone
0: make sure you opt out of the facial recognition uh, technology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, just, <laughs> sorry, uh-huh. go ahead.
2: So I, I agree that it's with the with that notion that people can kind of just like, you know, remove themselves. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people are pointing to that statistic that said 60% of the population will need to download it for it to be effective. However, mm-hmm. I would still put forth, even if we don't reach that critical mass, the benefit is still that you at least get a notification. Because what is the end goal here, right? We want people to make more educated health decisions. Yes, it would be great if we could get to that 60%. But I think that if you have an elderly parent, for instance, that you live with, and then you know you get a notification, mm-hmm. like I think that you're better off knowing and at least having the, the capability to make that different set of decisions. I think that still empowering the individual to make a decision is still very helpful, even if it's not oh, we reached 60%, so now we can you know, actually accurately mm-hmm. predict and then completely stamp this out. Mm-hmm. I think that we're all looking for the silver bullet when really we should be asking ourselves what adds to our end goals and then what detracts from our end goals and just go from that perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't think any one solution will 100% save us from this virus. Mm-hmm. I think we need a host of tools in our toolkit. And I think that to not use digital contact tracing because we're afraid that not enough people will download it and not to even attempt or at least encourage people to use it if it is a validly created system, I think that that's a mistake.
0: It's, it's, so, okay, so here's something I've been thinking about on this privacy thing, and I don't have a, uh, a super well thought out opinion here, but let's, uh, let's bounce it back and forth together. So people talk about data as if it's it's their data. So it's like when I go on to um, Pinterest uh, or when I go on to uh, Amazon and Chrome collects my browsing history, it's like the assumption is it's my data that people are collecting. But I have this image of like, imagine you're sitting at Starbucks and you're just writing down everybody who walks in and walks out, um, of the Starbucks and like a middle-aged woman, uh, a guy pushing a stroller. It's not obvious that the data belongs to the people who are being written. Uh, it, in that scenario, it seems like the data belongs to the person who's doing the collecting, right? Um, Chrome has, Google has provided us a browser and um, we are using their browser. Uh, and if they want to monitor the usage of the users, how, like, it, it's not super clear to me that the data is mine. Um, they put in the work to collect it. Uh, if, if I'm watching birds and I write down the birds that I watch, is it the birds' data or is it my data? Because I've put in the time to, to do this collection. Um, and so a lot of the privacy discussion, uh, is premised on the idea that it's my data, um, and that other people are collecting it and taking it from me and stripping me of my privacy. Um, but it doesn't seem obvious that that's true. So what do you guys think of this, that like the owner of the data is the one who collects it, not the one about whom it's being collected? That is an English sentence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. It's. I think that's a good point in a vacuum, but I think there's confounding mm. issues mm. of the inability to like fully function in society without using a lot of these platforms right? Okay, it's almost right. like coercion right? Like you, if you're not going to use Google if you use Bing and you're not going to use Google you're going to suffer some serious <laughs> yeah. consequences right? Like yeah. um, DuckDuckGo, have you he... heard of that? <laughs> yeah, DuckDuckGo, yeah yeah, and yeah. So, oh, but that's, a, that's actually a, fa- a great point right? Like um, I'm not sure so DuckDuckGo for those who aren't familiar is like a search engine just throws out all your data afterwards right? Mm. And so for this reason it's much less efficient when you search things mm. um, because it doesn't know your history. One of the reasons why people love using Google is because like the thing you're trying to search immediately pops up. And that's not an accident, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Baden's search history and my search history is, and my search history and Vaden and Steven's search uh, search history is like all different. Mm-hmm. And so when we type in the same thing, different things may, may pop up. Um, and that's super useful. Um, but Google's gathering that data. So DuckDuckGo throws all this out. And so when we search the same thing, the same thing's gonna pop up. And so it's gonna be less effective. Um, and th- you know, there's a reason why not that many people use DuckDuckGo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's this element of, like, you know, if you want to keep up in society, you, you've got to be on some of these platforms. You have to give away some of your data. So um, if you suffered, like, no loss by not giving your data, then I I think I take the point. But um, it's difficult when you start getting into this realm of almost, like, technological coercion that I think we've started to enter.
0: Yeah, like, I guess...
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Ben. Um, I wanted to say, like, my first instinct was, yes, that kind of, like, antitrust angle of, like, the market is dominated by these people, and you mm-hmm. will not get by. Like, if I needed to send you a document and I didn't send it as a dot .docx, right, it's, like, you'd be like, what is this, right, you know? Um, <laughs> I know that, like, Apple has their own proprietary word processing software, but almost no one uses it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that they have a way to export it in a way that integrates and talks to mm-hmm. Microsoft Word. Um, the other thing I'd point out, I think that, that was Are very you dissing interesting... pages,
1: Ben? Pages is great. Yeah,
2: pages, <laughs> okay. that's it. Thank you. <laughs> But I think it's interesting that, that example of passive observer, um, I think that it's a very interesting one, but I also differentiate it in the sense of these platforms only work if we're assuming that Google is not always going into our stuff unless we've already permitted it. So for instance, um, I was at a like workshop/ slash presentation where someone from ethics at Google was there right and they were talking to a bunch of students. and so I raised my hand and I was like, Given that AI has become very democratized in the sense of like Amazon has created a lot of, sorry, Google rather has created a lot of platforms that allow you to do a lot of ML online just straight from a browser. How are you ensuring that like people aren't using these for like nefarious or like, Purposes while still respecting their privacy, right? And like the, the guy thought, it was a great question because like he's, you're right, you can't just go around in different people's Google Drive mm-hmm. folder simply because you work for Google. Mm-hmm. However, you have a vested interest to ensure things like, let's say, intellectual property theft and things of that nature are not occurring on your service on your servers. Mm-hmm. So I think that their interest is in harm reduction. I don't think that their interest is innately in owning the data. But I'd argue that small locum of control is just enough to where, yes, as a browser, because I'm using their browser, they have some right to kind of look through certain aspects but I don't think that that's a free check to go through everything that I own and look through every message that I've ever sent.
0: That's an excellent point. Yeah. I could, so I guess I bring up the data question um, because the same argument would apply to just privacy in general, where if I uh, go to Starbucks uh, and somebody observes me, are they taking my privacy or am I like, is it even mine to, to, to give uh, your examples? I think are nice because it indicates misuses of technology or um, what's a better way to put it. It, it, It's like specific instances where the harm of an action outweighs any of the benefit. Um, And that makes a lot of sense to me. But when we talk about privacy or data as if it belongs to a particular person or agency and it's being taken from us, um, I think that that adds this emotional, uh, uh, elements to the conversation, which can, uh, obscure rather than clarify. I, yeah, what I don't even I know if clear? I'm going anywhere with this, but I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> so sorry, please, please. Yeah.
2: Uh, one thing I want to make clear <laughs> yeah. from just a very basic legal perspective there, yeah. like we always talk about, did you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? <laughs> so meaning like, you know, <laughs> like there's great. a difference between if you do something in the street outside your house bath versus like in your own bathroom, for instance. Right. So I would argue that although, um, we think of the internet as a whole as a public forum where a lot of this discourse goes on. I would argue that the action of walking into a target and seeing someone is publicly availing yourself. Whereas what I type into my search bar, if it's in the presence of like my own car or something, that is more of a private activity, even though everybody else has availability to that website, I would differentiate it on that basis. It, it, so it, one is a, is a deliberate action in public and the other is more a private action taken by an individual.
0: Okay. So you've given me a question I can ask to start, Understanding how I feel about this, so how do legal experts think about the concept of privacy? Um, you you just uh, said the phrase "reasonable expectation of privacy," which is uh, a term I've heard used, but I don't have a good understanding here. So, is there a clear delineation of different kinds of privacy uh, when it's okay to talk me through how legal people think about privacy? Because I know nothing. So, yeah. how long do you have? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah,
2: so I'm gonna try to go over it in some very broad concepts. Awesome. Um, Forgive me and correct me in the comments if anyone disagrees with some of my um, initial points or assertions. But from a very broad sense, when I said reasonable expectation of privacy, that is a concept that's borrowed from uh, Fourth Amendment, which is essentially uh, the one that regards to search and seizure. So when I say reasonable expectation of privacy, that lens is typically, specifically, your privacy relates as it relates to the government or law enforcement action. So a lot of the lenses of foundational privacy law have to do with when it comes to the police and observing your activities what can they do so a lot of the biggest private cases in privacy law involve like let's say a helicopter that looked down and saw a weed farm in someone's house or it involves using like a, a thermal scanner when you're driving down the street to detect people that have grow-ops and things like that
1: Unfortunately, Stephen's audio cuts out at this point, uh, probably because he was making too much sense. Uh, The universe couldn't even handle it. But he goes on to make the point that private actors aren't necessarily bound by the same laws and regulations as governments. So, for example, Twitter does not have the same legal responsibility to protect your First Amendment rights as does the U.S. government. And so in all situations with regards to privacy, it's important to ask who's the actor. Uh, Keeping in mind who's being observed and who is the observer goes a long way to achieving clearer thinking when it comes to these questions.
0: That was hugely clarifying. Thank you, because in my previous examples, I think I was getting stuck on my like, you're sitting in Starbucks observing somebody. And I didn't recognize the importance of this government-civilian distinction. And then you have this gray area of, of these Really large companies. And so, um, just that first, uh, 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 introduction of a new concept was great, which is if you're going to think about privacy, you have to think about who are the players. And once you have that player framework, then, um, you can start to make a bit more sense. And this ties to what Ben was saying, which is like, you can't just easily switch to DuckDuckGo. And so in that case, the the players are are these giant uh, tech, tech companies. So, Excellent. Keep going. That was great. I've, I've learned so much in that last answer. Please. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to say on the privacy issue or, or uh, if well, I return yeah, to what, the original question. Yeah,
1: one sorry. question I guess I would want to ask is like, to what extent has this definition of the reasonable expectation of privacy changed over time, right? Presumably, it is a function of the technological landscape to a certain extent, right? Like with different technologies, um, we have different expectations of what, constitutes privacy and so you know you you mentioned that this is based off the fourth amendment written by like the founders of the u.s they probably had a very different idea of what this reasonable expectation of privacy was to what someone now does just based on the ubiquity of tracking software and and cell phone data and all this stuff and so um yeah i guess to to what extent is this sort of a fluid concept that's continually debated and changing Mm -hmm. over time and is it changing in a Presumably, it's changing in a specific direction, right? Presumably, our expectation is becoming um, less and less stringent. Maybe is the best word over time. You know, we we expect more and more people, more and more companies to have our data, um, and so yeah. I guess I'm just it's half a half question, half assertion there that I'm throwing out there. But
2: no, no, I totally get you. Um, I think that one of the biggest shifts that we've seen in privacy. Is the automation and the fact that it's ongoing, right? So one of the biggest cases is in, I guess, Fourth Amendment law was essentially officers that were trying to catch someone who was supposedly illegally producing meth, and they attached a tracker to his car, and the court found that they shouldn't have been able to surveil him for a certain amount of days. I think it was like twenty-eight days or something without a warrant, right? And the notion was not that they necessarily knew what it was, knew where he was all the time, but they said that it was akin to the. Con- I mean, I guess it was that, and in, in, in the heart of it, it was that they could track him consistently with very minimal effort, right? And so. So the issue is not even often that someone is surveilling you once, but it's like, what is the ease in which that they're able to do that? Is it automated? Is it being assisted by some technology? So I think that the biggest shit that we've seen in privacy when it comes to a lot of these apps is number one. It used to be that, you know, we were in the same town and you'd have to physically see me. Now I have a phone that is constantly emitting different things, whether it be GPS, whether it be text messages and bouncing off cell towers, even advertiser IDs, right? Like those things, too, are very kind of powerful. And I think that the ability to um, uh, be able to instantaneously track individuals is something that is... uh, relatively new, if you will, you know? And I think that that's what really differentiates a lot of the modern privacy debates from ones of uh, years prior.
0: And I guess also, um, just uh, kind of bouncing on what what Stephen said earlier, uh, when new big players come into the game that don't fit this uh, uh, framework which the the founding fathers came up with 200 years ago, Mm -hmm. like giant private tech companies, then the conversation has to begin anew because we don't know how the various companies are all going to relate to one another. So, um, I just love this idea of having to consider the agents, uh, as a central part of this, this question to, to try to make progress. Um, and okay. So on that, there's this other, um, so, okay. So on the subject of agents and privacy, there's this concept I heard in some podcast somewhere, and I might totally get this wrong. That's not surveillance, but surveillance. Have you heard this? Um, S-O-U-S. Um, and I might be completely butchering this concept, but it's if, if surveillance is the state uh, looking down at individuals, surveillance is the individuals looking back up at the state. Mm. Um, so this would be everyone having uh, phones in their pockets and then being able to film police brutality when it happens mm. um, and then circulate these these uh, uh, videos widely and then uh, cause change uh, this way, where the technology is in the hands of the, the people. And this actually has this like mutual surveilling effect. Um And so back to the subject of facial recognition technology and privacy, could it be the case that, um, say, civilians can immediately detect the identities of police officers um, and then use that to uh, uh, hopefully moderate their behavior in the same way that um, body cameras are hopefully affecting police officers' behavior? But almost certainly, now that police know that all of uh, the people around them have essentially a recording device in their, in their pocket. That's got to be uh, changing behavior in some, in some sense. And so what do we think about technology and privacy inverting the power hierarchies a little bit um, in, in some of the ways I, I mentioned and back to the issue of face recognition technology. Uh, uh, could that be used to do this?
2: Yeah. Um, so I was unfamiliar with that term until you said that, but I'm, I'm familiar with the concept. So thank you for teaching me that new term. Um, I think well not even i think in hong kong the protesters specifically used facial recognition technology to identify officers that were obscuring their badges and their identities and so that's a very clear-cut example of what you're saying where like the the populace is using um technology to kind of almost write the scales if you will i think that a lot of the privacy protection in the u.s assume that the government was would always be a dominating power of the individual and i think that while most of that is true i do think that the average American is probably much more empowered to kind of do large-scale change than they were many years ago. So I think that's very oh. fascinating to watch. An example I want to like kind of point out is I think is like doxing, right? And it's like that concept <laughs> of like, <laughs> is it ever ethically correct? You know, you've seen when it goes wrong and they misidentify people as like white nationalists okay. and that has the potential for massive abuse. Um, even just oh, like cool. random things like swatting, right? Um, I think that the power of an individual with a cell phone and a laptop has never been so great. I think that at sometimes mm-hmm. it can yield uh, positive outcomes, such as like with the Arab Spring and everything. And I think that in other situations, it could be definitely used for kind of like, almost like individual acts of terror, if you will. So I think that there's always that kind of fear. But um, for the most part, I think that it, you identified something very interesting, which is that when we typically say the word privacy, we're talking about the privacy of individuals, but the government definitely has some, uh, let's say, ghosts in its closet. And I think that we could use technology often to kind of uncover some of those and identify problematic behavior and also triage it and then act upon it if we need to. So I think that there definitely is an empowerment that we haven't seen in years past that's happening now.
0: Ooh, okay. So since we're just spitballing on privacy, here's here's one that, uh, that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Do you think the government has a right to privacy? Um, and... Uh, uh, because we talk, we tend to, at least so far to talk about privacy of civilians. Um, but what do we think about um, the government having privacy? Do you think that's a valid concept and an invalid concept? What are our thoughts here?
2: So one thing I want to delineate is government and government action. Right. So in court mm-hmm. cases, like you can redact certain things. So let's say we have a trade secret dispute between our two country companies, rather. Um, if you wanna raise it to the, the seriousness of litigation, but you don't want to expose expose all of your information to public record, you can redact it or have mm-hmm. parts of it sealed. So I think that there are sometimes in government action when dealing with certain players, there's a benefit to the redaction and some of that. But I think that when it comes to mm-hmm. government expenditures and specific like large-scale policy decisions, I think that there should be a higher standard. And I think that people should be um encouraged to have a very transparent form of government. I think that it's in our best interest to know exactly what's happening. Now, obviously, there are certain things that um, maybe we shouldn't fully announce, like, let's say, military strategic operations and things like that in the moment. Mm-hmm. But I do mm-hmm. think that there is much more room for transparency in our current government as it relates to spending policy decisions and also even just like You'd say, like, say, political influences and stuff like that. I think that there's a large amount of uh, activity going on, particularly with the current administration, that we can even just largely define as suboptimal. That if we shine a light on it, we might be able to uncover <laughs> certain things. So, in the Such
0: in the way, yeah. I'll say that like, nice way, so, but, suboptimal performance from the current administration. Lots of room for improvement. <laughs> yeah. That's so, great.
1: yeah, my initial reaction to that was like, no government is comprised of individuals themselves who have a right to privacy but government as an entity is not i'm not i'm not even sure what that concept looks like exactly um because you know government is charged with making decisions that reflect presumably reflect the values of the electorate and the electorate thereby has a right to know what those decisions are but then steven you know you mentioned like militaristic interventions right and that it might be it might prove um difficult for the operation if they're just going to disclose all uh all aspects of some military operation to the public and then i realized like this line is quite hard to draw right so what you know what are you going to say here you're going to say it's only we're only going to disclose the information that's in the public's best interest But who's making that call right like do you want do you have to vote like in congress or something does the president just get to say what information is allowed to be leaked to the public are we going to confine it only to militaristic operations um and so this is actually as soon as you said that i realized this is actually a much more complicated question that then maybe we'd let on um and so yeah
2: it's a great question. I think that the way that modern privacy law tackles this is that they do it by classes of information and also they do it by mm. who is the subject of that information. So for instance, if you look at like, let's say HIPAA law compared to like educational law, right? Like there's certain mm. classes of information that you just can't reveal unless, you know, there's waived consent and these other issues, right?
0: And then also, Sorry for the, uh, the non-law students.
2: Uh, what's HIPAA law? Oh, sorry. Uh, HIPAA. Uh, I'm blanking on the exact Just, translation uh, of that acronym, but yes. it's essentially the law that protects, um, uh, patients or people who are receiving healthcare from having their information shared by healthcare providers. So it's the reason why your doctor can talk to another doctor to consult, but your doctor can't just like, you know, go laugh on the phone to their spouse about what gotcha. they witnessed, gotcha. essentially. Mm-hmm. And it also, in terms of data, like if I, let's say I get an x-ray at your uh, clinic, for instance, right, it prevents you from transferring it without my knowledge. And that's why you have to do those waived authorizations when you get a new doctor um, to transfer that <laughs> information. So HIPAA law protects mm-hmm. medical patients mm-hmm. from having their information um, unfairly disclosed. And then um, to give you an example within law, because I I work for now juvenile delinquency law, so essentially representing children charged with crimes. Um, And what's fascinating is when it comes to the public in most jurisdictions, if it's like, let's say, like a heinous crime, or even if it's something as I don't want to say, like, you know, it's innocuous because, like, you know, Grand Theft Auto is relatively serious. But, like, in terms of, like, victims, it's not as big, I would say, as yep. violent crime. Um, In in most scenarios, they will not identify the minor. They might give you the initials or they might even just use a fabricated name, but they won't post a picture. They'll just post a silhouette. So I think that the classification and how we determine what gets released, do it by the class of information or do it by who specifically is the focus of the data and that information.
0: That's, that's really okay, interesting. Let, okay let me
1: give you sorry so let me give an example that i think does qu- doesn't quite fit into that framework so to what extent should the public be made aware of the auditing strategy of the federal government right so in the, in the u.s case the irs so the irs conducts like audits every day they get a bunch of tax returns they conduct audits so presumably there can't be 100% transparency here because if you know the exact methodology that's used to choose who to audit, then those who are trying to cheat on their taxes will make sure that they don't hit any of those flags, right? And so no one's going to be caught cheating ever on their their taxes. Um, At the same time, you probably don't want this system to be a hundred percent black box. You kind of want the public to be able to investigate like, oh, are certain communities being targeted more than other ones? are is auditing falling more towards the low low income people than high income, for example, right? And mm-hmm. so those seem to be legitimate questions that the public may have that presumably they want answers to. And so drawing that dividing line, though, between 100% transparency and zero seems difficult, right? And I'm not sure if that can be answered it just in terms of like who's being affected and who's not. Um, so I just put that to you as a sort of case study.
2: Yeah, when we talk about auditing, I want to clarify something. I think that you can audit in terms of the results of the system and who had access to the system. And I think mm-hmm. that you can audit from a technical perspective. Excuse me. Essentially, ensuring whether all the dots were crossed and whether the system was made ethically, and whether you know it, it will encompass all the future challenges that this system might um, increase. And so, I'm advocating more for the former. I'm advocating that you should tell me how many Americans you believe underpaid taxes, and you should in theory tell me like what are the Like the wealth ranges, like I don't need exact names, but tell me like how many of them fell between zero and 25,000 per year, 25 to 50 and then escalating up. So we have an understanding of the classes. I agree with you that if you give people the keys to the castle and the source code, someone will reverse engineer to gain the system. I 100% do not believe that we should be giving full, wide access to these technical systems. But I think that the outcome and subsequently what you do with that information, I think that we can have a lot more clarity there. And that will, number one, increase public trust. Because let's be honest, public trust of the government is almost at an all-time low, at least in my lifetime, I'll <laughs> say it's at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. And I think that one way to regain that is introduce more transparency and say, hey, we implemented this new system two years ago. Here's what it did. Here's what it, here's what it um,
0: failed to do. And here's how we're moving forward, without necessarily revealing
2: the secret sauce, so to speak.
0: Just to add to that, uh, one's simple uh, kind of transparency—sorry, transparency—which I'm very much in favor of—is just data collection. Like, my God, we were studying the uh, uh, police brutality subject a few episodes back, and le- learning that uh, most municipalities don't keep track of, of basic um, like fatality records. Like, my, this is terrible. And so, uh, just having publicly available data. Um, on some subjects which are of like great in, uh, interest to the public I think is is one very specific way to to increase transparency and um, and uh, yeah I just see is as, as a huge glaring uh, problem that could be improved yes. so just to, to echo it with uh, Susan. and to
2: add two specific uh, like examples of that um just to show that data collection is extremely vital is just like what you mentioned with the police and like how they necessarily report either officer misconduct or even specific instances. In the Breonna Taylor case, for instance, the officers reported on their paper that like he, she had suffered no injuries. They later claimed that this was an administrative error. But in reality, I, I I honestly believe that there that is not the first time that injuries have either been minimized or omitted from official police reports. Mm-hmm. And so there are people that are trying to use former police con- misconduct records to identify potentially bad apples, quote unquote, which is a funny word for murderer. <laughs> certain situations. Um, but the issue then becomes, if the police are maintaining their own records have certain biases is what they believe to be the ultimate officer, how are you then supposed to make reliable decisions? And just the other okay. same, second example I'll give is from Autonomous Vehicles. I was speaking to an expert in that field last week. And so I was asking him about bias within Autonomous Vehicles. And one of the most fascinating things he said to me is that um, Tesla and many of these vehicles use almost like a hive mind process, meaning that they learn from each of the vehicles based on their own experiences, right? And some of that is not even just from the autonomous vehicle. They also learn from you as the human driving. So in a very basic sense, Google may tell you that like this is the shortest route, but you may know because school gets out on this specific road, you should actually take this detour, and that's actually the quickest route. So reduce, like that's one that you can delve from, right? However, what the uh, expert pointed out to me was that even in human drivers we have certain biases when it comes to driving so if you type in like biased pedestrian um crash race, for instance, you'll find there's a bunch of studies that show that human beings and our just our normal driving habits, we respond to pedestrians differently based on their race and certain things like that. And so the issue is that when you integrate that data into your hive mind and in your data pool of learning, now these autonomous vehicles are also inheriting this bias that we have just from normal autonomous, from sorry, from normal manual drivers, rather, into Mm -hmm. its database, right? And so subsequently, some of that bias and some of those differences you see with black pedestrians and white pedestrians is inherited from just how we normally drive right and so there's a question mm-hmm. of in, even in data collection how do you make sure that it's reliable objective and like it's not kind of hampered by yeah. our existing biases so that was a great point that you pointed out with data collection
0: the um like one so simple thing that sh- sh- we should just mention so we have it is is external review agencies so the reason that um People don't audit themselves, is because you can't trust them to accurately report their own financial history all the time. So you need some external agency to come in and, and say, "Are you are you uh, reporting things accurately?" Uh, I heard one example of like when airplanes crash, you don't trust the airline to report what happened. You have external uh, review agencies that come in and analyze the black box and, and see like what failed yeah. and. So it should be with policing, um, and so it should be with a lot of places. Is you have some neutral uh, external agency which which does a lot of the this data collection and auditing f- for you, and that's why there's auditors, right? some external <laughs> group doing the checking and doing the, the data collection. And it's it's obviously perfect, and there's bias in that process too. Um, but it's at least a way to reduce some of the some of the, the errors.
2: Yeah. Shout out to the NTSB. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, it's like, um, so I I am in AI and I obviously care a lot about the, uh, the ethics uh, and the ethical conversations um, surrounding it. I'm so impressed with, with like your work and and the work of Georgetown University. Is that where the perpetual lineup came, came out of? Um, Because I've heard so much of the subject is dominated by like uh, AGI is going to take over the world um, that I was kind of losing faith that people outside of the fields are taking like some of this, the the main problems seriously and thinking about them. Um, in like really rigorous uh, ways, and so it's been really um, uh, I think uh, enlightening to see how people just uh, one step removed from the technology are thinking about aspects of the technology that people within it aren't uh, necessarily thinking about. Because um, I was not uh, aware of the, uh, the, the the implications of some of the facial recognition technology until I studied your work and, and, and uh, the work of people you uh, recommended. So it's just cool to see. Um, Uh, that there's some really important conversations being had outside the the
2: community. Thanks. And yeah, and if I could just add to one thing that I might have forgotten about the facial recognition aspect Mm -hmm. is that some of these are hard questions as to when we should deploy them. Some of these are soft questions. Like in the UI UX design, how can you mitigate for misuse or misinterpretation of the results? So one thing I always, like the the Willie Lynch case that I mentioned earlier, the thing that stood out to me about this case, and there's a few things that you can take from it, is that they deposed the analyst who ran the software, right? So not the field agent that took the photo, but the analyst who was in a cushy room that should have the education for it. And they asked her questions like, okay, so two stars that appeared next to his name, But they asked her, okay, how many stars are possible? What does each star mean? What's the relative difference between the second and the third position? And she couldn't answer that. And so I'm blown away how we can develop systems and establish a legal system that demands certainty at certain levels in certain places, but then in others, you're just being kind of open and like, you know, not rigorous. And so it's really (laughs) some of these are hard fixes and questions that we need to come together as a society and decide. And then some of these are just UI, UX design (laughs) decisions, right? Like you can literally just nip a lot of these issues in the bud if you're thinking about that from a design perspective at the beginning. So I just love to give people the tools to make those design decisions from the beginning so we eliminate some of those issues on the tail end
1: i guess yeah one thing just in terms of framework of thinking about stuff often i guess my utilitarian leanings encourage me to think about things in terms of like costs and benefits right so i tend to think about like policies and security what have you in terms of like do the do the costs outweigh the benefits or vice versa and so i'm curious if you guys hold a more absolutist position with respect to, like, security and privacy, and you think there are just certain breaches which should not happen regardless of the circumstances, or if there are situations in which, you know, if the benefits for some larger group of people outweigh the cost for a smaller group of people, should uh, we allow that to to take place? Um, All of that, obviously, is assuming that we could, like, know what the cost and benefits are, and that is its own conversation. Trying to assess those can be difficult. But I'm wondering if that is a general lens through which you guys tend to view things like just, you know, we, we try and calculate the cost, we try and look at the benefits, we try and assess where the technology is going and then we make a decision from there. Or if you think about things more um, in, yeah, an absolutist term, when you say like a certain breach of privacy, you know, the government, for example, or a police station knowing where you, where you are at all times is inadmissible no matter what, no matter what, to, what the benefits are. Um, and yeah, just how you guys try and reason through these things.
2: I think that I approach it with a little bit more of a holistic view. So it's almost like a third category. Um, I think that costs and benefits, although great as a starting point, I think that I want to point out that not all costs are born equally. And I'd argue that people's privacy may have different values, both internally and externally to the market. Something that was really eye-opening um, was a conference that I actually went to at Georgetown that was put on by the same center that I had written Perpetual Lineup, and they were talking about mass surveillance of the poor, and specifically situations like truck drivers who have monitors on their car, on themselves, tracking them from location to location, every second must be accounted for. They talked about like Amazon warehouses, how people even have their bathroom breaks times, um, mm-hmm. and how in certain... Um, low income and in public housing, people are using facial recognition to cut down on things like unauthorized tenants and how, and often like, I guess my, the argument of crime that we had discussed in, during the first podcast and how facial recognition can be used to combat crime. My biggest mm-hmm. issue with that is that that's often used as a pretext to kind of just shove technology on down people's throats that are like not necessarily the most sophisticated users and are often in low income situations so i feel like the notion of safer societies is sometimes used as pretext as to why we need to integrate this now and like this whole like kind of notion and it's like i think that in most places in America, crime is almost inevitable, and I think that sometimes we live in a fantasy land where we imagine where we can get that down to zero. I 100% agree that not all crime is equal, and I agree that we should definitely be trending, hopefully, towards you know decreasing crime over the over the range. But I think that people have this fantasy view sometimes that we can reduce it to 100% zero, and I think that the if we were to do that, we would not live in a world that's recognizable to our current one in terms of our freedoms mm-hmm. and our privacies. Right. So that's one thing that I'm always cognizant of, but to answer your specific question about the lens that I use, it's definitely very situation-based, and I try to mm-hmm. look at it from a variety of angles.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like um, on the absolutism question, uh, I would say that uh, I um, I tend to be absolutist on uh, policies rather than... Um, Concepts like privacy or freedom or liberty or democracy, which are very difficult to to pin down, um, and the things which I like am absolutist about are uh, only those which have been borne out over uh, hundreds of years to be uh, uh, effective. Like a free press, for example, <laughs> um, I would be very absolutist in the idea that uh, you need a free press, um, and it's it's rare when I would. Uh, would say something like that but it, um but only in those circumstances where like we've tried all the alternatives and this seems to be the best one would I, I tend to to dig my my heels in and say we we absolutely need this or um uh civil rights movement or or gay rights movement like yeah i'll absolutely I'll be quite absolutist on on these these points but on questions of um do i have a, a right to privacy always and forever uh, i don't think so and and that's why i um, I, I, like the inclusion of, um, both classes of information, uh, and also, uh, different agents because these were included into law precisely because people were, were trying to wrestle with these issues and realize that like, we can't just focus on privacy as like capital P privacy. We need to introduce some extra concepts here in order to start making progress on, on such difficult, difficult issues. And so, uh. So yeah, I don't know. What, what, what do you think?
2: No, I agree. Yeah. Like, if if it was like a two yeah. second, if it was just a one sentence thesis, I would be. Yeah. It would be absolute privacy is a farce. Absolute safety is a farce. <laughs> that yeah, would be nice, like, yeah. Nice,
0: <laughs> nice. Yeah, put that on a bumper sticker. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Ben. But uh, what are your thoughts? Nice. We, yeah. Because we should wind down soon. But uh, yeah, yeah, but sure. Just, yeah, yeah maybe, one
1: thing I, I guess know. I'd like to pull apart. Maybe now. Maybe later. <laughs> is you know like baden you and i have talked a lot about how change happens and how we evaluate it so like you know as as a society we sort of like take these incremental steps in certain ways and then we try and evaluate it to the best of our abilities Mm -hmm. and if it seems promising Mm -hmm. we can move further in that direction if it doesn't we move away um but this requires that the experiments these social experiments like take place at the end of the day so you know to be Mm -hmm. somewhat provocative like maybe an ultimate panopticon in which everyone's filmed all the time is actually the ultimate state of being. I highly doubt it, but you know, just the the thought experiment, but it seems unlikely that we will actually institute such a policy. Right. So it seems hard to like have that knowledge beforehand. And it almost seems unethical to even propose such an experiment, given what we know about like how power dynamics uh, uh, play themselves out in, in this country and the disparities that exist between groups and whatnot, and so, you know, it, you, you cite the example of, like, the free press, right, we've seen that the free press um, has been of a great advantage to many societies over the course of 100 years, but there's a lot of policies for which we don't have that sort of data, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, mm-hmm. we can't say, well, the panopticon has failed because it's been, it's been mm-hmm. tried in societies for 100 years and hasn't led to good outcomes, like, no, we have no data mm-hmm. on this, and so, I guess this just goes to, to the question of, like, what exper- what societal experiments do you sort of try, right? Like, even if you're skeptical of something, do you still try it in a, in a certain region to just understand mm-hmm. how it worked? Um, but then, of course, you're subjecting the people who live in, in that region to potentially some very disadvantageous situations. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's this whole like, role of, like, how we learn as a society, how we learn what's good, what's bad. And a lot of it tends to be up to chance, Because there's certain experiments that we just don't want to, we don't want to um, partake in. I guess as a,
2: and that's the thing. I I think that what you just said on is like, when people talk about surveillance, they often think of someone watching them through a closed circuit TV. But like even Mm -hmm. just having a phone on you is surveillance. You driving a car on the highway Mm -hmm. and easy Pass just dinging every time you go past Mm -hmm. a meter, that's surveillance. Like red light cameras, surveillance. So. I'm of the mindset that we have so many beacons, if you will, constantly either emitting directly from us or tracing us in a sense that I'm asking why add one more knife to the set, essentially. Like, I don't understand why we need to progress that. And I do feel like that Panopticon, I feel that although... Um, it seems very far-fetched. When you look at places like Detroit and Chicago where there's an ever-increasing amount of cameras and it's often under the control of like one department and then there's situations where other people from out of state may be able to have access to it, I think that's when you start getting into Panopticon territory. And what's happening in SF right now with the cameras too, if those were ever centralized mm-hmm. and the access was united, that begins to look at the Panopticon to me too. And I just want to be very careful to kind of like push back on that like wherever I see it and just at least question whether that's actually what we want to do and whether input has been taken from every um, person that may be affected by the system.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I can't improve on uh, what was just said. So that sounds sounds great. Uh, Any closing thoughts? Uh, Nothing so much. Of, actually, no, I do have one closing thought, which is just that um, I've benefited so much from conversations uh, with, with you, Stephen. And and uh, I hope that you can come back at some point uh, in the future, especially when you think that there's something in the tech sector, which techies aren't taking seriously. Yeah. You at least have one channel into it through, uh, through, through Ben and I. Definitely. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's been so much fun. Yeah.
2: Thank you yeah. so much, guys. I really appreciate it. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, there shouldn't be much of a you know. There shouldn't really be a reason for you to come back on because we've solved privacy. So yeah, I think, I think we're good. <laughs> we're good to go. The, the problem yeah, is privacy issue is solved.